0: But uh, welcome my name is Jeff Kennedy I'm the senior pastor here if you are new or newer with us we are in a series on the gospel of John uh, called the glory of the one and only and that's Christ Uh, we're in John chapter 7 today and we're gonna cover that so if you have a Bible you can turn there really quickly but first I want to tell you a story I grew up uh, swimming and playing on the weekends uh, in the James River in Virginia. Anybody, anybody seen the James River? Yes. Yeah, I don't know what it looks like lately. But uh, when I grew up playing there, it's just kind of a murky, muddy, uh, about this consistency of a Yoo-Hoo drink. You ever had one of those cancer fuel drinks? Yeah, um, looks kind of about like that, but I didn't know any better. I, I grew up there. And then I go off to Seattle, and I see just this jaw-dropping beauty of the Pacific Northwest. And I think, I didn't know there was a place on earth that was that cool. And then I meet this little girl named Carrie Neubauer, who just, I fall crazy in love with. And, she, and I ask her where she's from. And she said, I'm from Idaho. And then we get engaged. And as the story unfolds, uh, I, I wanted to bring her out to Virginia so she could see the house that, that built all this, Right. <laughs> I wanted her, her to have context. And I thought before she signs the deal here uh, and closes the deal, I want to make sure she knows where I'm from. That is a miracle that woman married me. And uh, that's a miracle. If you don't believe in miracles, there you go. And uh, so she came back to Virginia with me. We were engaged at the time and stayed in my home with my, with my mom. And so I took her everywhere. I tried to show her all these historical places, these historical sites and, uh, you know, Jamestown and Monticello, you know, and try to take her to the Smithsonian. And we were driving across the bridge one day. And, I go, and oh, hey, that's, that's the James River. And she goes, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> not impressed with that ugly murky river. And then we go out and we get married and her parents invite us out to vacation. And they, they, they have a little spot right on the North Fork of the Coeur River. Here's what that looks like. Yeah, a little different than the James River. <laughs> I remember I first got out there and I went, no way. You can see to the bottom. <laughs> we got in a boat, we're out on the river and I go, hey, there's fish at the bottom, you can see them. And then I got in the water and I was like, too cold. I'm never getting in this water again, not ever. That water's so cold. And for the, and I'm not kidding for the next 20 years, they bought, they would go tubing down the river and they bought me a a raft so that not one scintilla of my body was in the water (laughs) because it was so cold and I never did get used to it and uh, I want to show you by contrast another river put this another this other picture up yeah in 2015 the environmental protection underline that word protection agency personnel along with some employees from the environmental restoration LLC destroyed a mining plug in Colorado and which was holding back three million gallons of toxic slurry that filled that river. It affected three different states and they don't think still to this day that they have it all cleaned up yet. And a number of toxic metals and chemicals just went out into the river. So if you got your drinking water from it or you were used to, yeah, this, guy, this poor guy kayaking. If you have to kayak in a hazmat suit, you know something's <laughs> wrong, Right. And so the two choices that Jesus in this text is going to give us today is he's going to give us the choice between between the river and the water of life, which is clean and pure. The water of the Holy Spirit to drink from, or that. The toxic river of our culture. And there are four streams. Four streams that feed into the river of our culture that we drink from, or we are tempted to drink from, or they want us to. The first one is this. It's a failed worldview. It's secularism. Stream number one is a failed worldview, it's secularism. What do we mean by this? It's just the belief that there is no God, and even if there were one, He doesn't have any relevancy to my life, so I'm going to live as if there is no God. And what is the problem with this worldview? Is that it doesn't have an answer for anything it can put an ipad or an iphone or a medical breakthrough in your hands it can give you something that today seems like star trek technology by comparison to 10 years ago but it can't solve any of the hunger and the ache of your heart that worldview is fail it has failed america america is sick because it's been fed this stream secularism Stream number two is institutional immorality, institutional immorality. When a culture believes that there is no God, when people in a culture are told persistently, consistently, that there is no God, then there can be no system of objective morality in that world. And if there's no objective morality, then you make up your own morality. And if you do that, you will end up, like our culture has done, calling evil good, and good evil. And then you institutionalize that because you think everybody should think this way. Wrong. Bad stream. Stream number three, pervasive growing doubt. What do we mean here? Just a few short years ago, I, could, I would have cited you a statistic that said only 5% of the people in our culture, 5% registered as atheists when surveyed. Today, I read a, I read a statistic last week that said that's now just... Just five or 10 years later, that's now as high as 26%. Well, when you consistently tell a culture there is no God and there is no objective morality, and that evil can be called good and good can be called evil, then you can, and then you institutionalize that immorality, then there's going to be a growing sense of doubt, a pervasive sense of doubt in our culture. And today people are suffering record highs in depression. It's because without God, there's no purpose. There's no actual hope, no meaning in your life. And it's not just doubt about God. It's, a, it's doubt about the existence of actual truth. How many of you have watched the news and thought, wait a second. There really is objective truth. There really are some things that are just true and some things that are not. And so we live in a postmodern culture today. Stream number four. Vicious cruelty. Vicious pitiless, remorseless cruelty at every level and strata of our society. The other day, just, to, just as an example, I had wrote that on Thursday, turned it into the team. And then I was out on Friday doing some errands, just trying to kind of shop, get some things done so I wouldn't have to do things last minute. So I was being good, right? And uh, I pull up to the stop sign and I just became overwhelmed with gratitude for the Lord. Honestly, I was thinking about you. I was thinking about all of you who have been so gracious and so kind and so generous to us. And then I just had the sorrow, to be honest with you. I had the sorrow mixed into that for all that we have faced this last year and then this surgery I've got coming up in January. And I just, tears started coming out of my eyes. And then I hear, honk! I look up, who knows how long that light was green. And I was like, oh, sorry. And I just kind of pulled around. And the girl who was driving the Honda behind me, she pulled really fast around me. And then as she was passing me, she was screaming through the window and gave me a finger. It was one of these three. (laughs) I will let you guess which one. And she just passed me by and I prayed for that girl. I really did. I just prayed for her. and And you know what made that possible for her to do that to me? is that she did not see another human being in that car. She just saw an object. And when there is no God and there is no morality, and people just make up whatever morality they want to live in, and then there is just pervasive growing doubt about the existence of God and His, his virtues and His principles and values in the world, when that happens, then people just treat each other cruelly. You become the victim of a Twitter mob. And that is made all the more worse by anonymous technologies that allow allow us to say nasty, cruel, horrible things to other YouTubers in total anonymity. What a horrible thing. Those are four streams that are feeding into this river, this culture that people are just drinking from. And it has made our culture sick. And we're going to stand before the rabbi today at the Feast of Tabernacles, and He is going to offer us another river. And it's this one, John 7, this says, on the last greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this, he meant the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive up to the time the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. You and I are faced with a choice today. We can drink from Christ. We can receive the Holy Spirit. We can subsist on that flow. Or we can drink from the culture, and it's a failed worldview, folks. It's failed. Let me give you a little background of what feast he's at. The feast that Jesus says this at is what's called the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles is very different. It's very different from the Feast of Passover or from Yom Kippur. In those feasts, you kind of walk around in sackcloth and ashes, and you just kind of very solemnly repent of your sin. And you ask God for forgiveness, and you thank God that the blood of the bull will cover you for one more year, right? You thank God for that, but the Feast of Tabernacles, not so much. Here's what it's all about. It's their fall festival. It's held every September, October-ish. It's a joyous, raucous celebration of the bountiful harvest and the abundance of God's provision. This is the Jews' opportunity to say, thank you for the harvest. Thank you for the abundance that you have given us, Lord God. And it was such a raucous celebration that it could be heard from miles around. And there's a ritual there that's key to this feast of Sukkot or, or tabernacles the key to the feast is this golden pitcher that they would haul down in procession down to the pool of Siloam and once they got to the pool of Siloam they would fill these golden pitchers up and then in processional they would proceed all the way back up to the temple mount where there was an altar inside and on one half of the altar they would pour flasks or jars of wine and on the other half, they would pour these, this golden pitcher of water. And the scripture seems, scholars make it clear that sometime on this last greatest day of the feast, I can imagine Jesus waiting for that water to be poured out. And then standing up before they blow the shofar and before they celebrate and jump for joy and leap for joy. I can imagine him saying, wait, I am the water of life, you know, I'm the living water. And here's what it fulfilled. Isaiah 20, 12, 3. It says, Therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Isaiah 44, 3. It says, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my Holy Spirit, the precious Spirit, on your offering and my blessing on your descendants. And as the psalmist said, With an ache in his heart as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you oh god my soul thirsts for god for the living god and jesus says i am the fulfillment of all of that now we learn in john's gospel in chapter one that he is the eternal logos from eternity right we learned that he is god the son the son of god and god the son we learned that in chapter one in verse 14 it says that son that logos was fleshed in human form And being enfleshed in human form, he dwelled. The word dwelled is the word for tabernacle. He tabernacled with us for a while. And here is Jesus standing in this great feast to say, I am it. I am the water. I am God who has come among your midst. And I'm the water who gives life. Drink from me. So John is explicit about what he's talking about. His main idea today is that Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to all who are thirsty. Anyone, indiscriminately, doesn't matter who you are, regardless of where you come from, whether or not you are a doubter, a seeker, a sympathetic wanderer, or an enemy of the cross. If you turn to faith in Jesus, no matter what your background was, you're welcome to come and drink. And those are the people right there, those four groups, we're going to meet them in the story. We're actually going to meet them here. So let's follow the story that flanks this statement. And we're going to look at four responses to Jesus saying, I'm the living water. Come to me and come to drink life instead of death, instead of darkness. Response number one is contempt due to familiarity. That's the family. That's their response. Now the brothers, his brothers, who are they? Uh, Joseph, named after dad, right? So that's probably, the, he's probably the second. And then you've got James. And then you've got Jude or Judah or Judas, whatever you want to call him. And then you've got Shimon or Simon. So you've got those four brothers. And here's what they say. John chapter 7 verses 3 through 5. Jesus' brother said to him, leave Galilee, get out of here. Go down to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. No one wants, no, anyone who wants to become a public figure no one acts in secret if they do. Since you are doing these things, I mean, clearly you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. That's the key. Even his own family did not believe in them. And can you blame them? Can you? What if your brother, what if my big brother came to me, Skip, my brother's is Skip, and he came to me and he said, Jeff, I'm the water of life. <laughs> I'd be like, man, get out of here. Yeah, I... So even though they know that he's never committed a sin in the home, and even though now in his adult ministry, they know this, our brother is performing miracles. He's obviously some kind of prophet or something. What What are they saying? They're saying you should become a public politician. Like you should become a public figure. And if you want to do that, you have to follow the track that everyone else is on. You have to get on that track. And Jesus says this, right now is not my hour. For you, anytime is right but it's not my hour So they go down to the feast Jesus waits And then he goes in clandestine fashion And then they find him just teaching in the temple courts It's really kind of a comical story But I think here's the application from that For you and I Don't make the mistake like Jesus' brothers Of domesticating Jesus We don't want to housebreak him Like we don't want a domesticated Jesus Who's just kind of a politician Jesus exists to be on your team No he doesn't Jesus hasn't come to be on your team. He's come to be on his team and he's come to invite you to be on his. So we just, we co-opt Jesus for all kinds of personal projects, right? And philosophies. I wanna make Jesus a conservative Republican. Or I want to make Jesus a bleeding heart liberal for the masses who are in disenfranchised, right? We want to co-opt Jesus into our group so that he can come and join our team. Look, Jesus, if you want people to like you, just become a public figure. Jesus is not just a public figure. He is a dying sacrifice for the nations. And he's not going to join your team. He invites you to join his So let's make no mistake that James, Joseph, Jude, Jude, and Simon, let's make no mistake about it. Let's not imagine like they did, that they could sort of kind of get the edges off of Jesus, make him a smarmy sycophant, sucking up to every voting demographic. No, Jesus hasn't come to be your politician. Jesus has come to be the sovereign Lord of the world. And when he comes and he speaks into your life, it is is truth-telling time. Response number two is unsettled belief due to controversy. Now here we have the Jerusalem crowd. Now last week we talked about the Galilean crowd and that was just a, that was a serious dust up, right? Cause Jesus told them, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me and most of them left. So they showed themselves to be false disciples. Now, in this case, he's gone down south to Judea, down into Jerusalem, and that's where most of these people are from. Now this crowd in Jerusalem, they are just, they're not sure. And when, as you read through this text, you'll see that they're just going back and forth. Like, oh yeah, I believe in them. Oh, I kind of don't. Yeah, yeah, I believe in them. But uh, what about this other thing? And you almost get a kind of whiplash here watching the crowd deliberate. And there are four sections Four summaries in this chapter that he punctuates the chapter with. Where he tries to show you the crowd's response. We'll start in verse 12 and 13. It says, among the crowds there there was widespread whispering about him. So Jesus of Nazareth is all anyone can talk about. And someone said, "Uh, he is a good man. He's a good man. And others replied, no, he's deceiving the people. No one wanted to say anything publicly for fear of the leaders. Verse 25 and 27, look at this. It says, and at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Uh, Here he is speaking in publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really now concluded that he is the Messiah? But wait a minute. We know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Where is that in the Old Testament? It isn't. This is like, the, doesn't the Bible say that God helps those who help themselves? I'm pretty sure that's in there. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it isn't. And that's kind of where these people are too. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's in Mo- Moses, right? No, it isn't. Where do they get that? Verse 30 and 31, again, at this time, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Verse 31, still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, it, it, would it, will it be possible for him to do more miracles than this man? No. Verse 40 and 41, on hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is a prophet. Oh, their hearts are warm to it. Others said, he must be the Messiah. He is the Messiah. Still, others asked, now, wait a second, how can the Messiah come from Galilee, from Podunk, Galilee. Does not the scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. I want to tell you this right now. It's okay to be unsettled in your belief if it's over Jesus, if it's because of Jesus. It's because, man, at this point you just can't, you're not sure. I mean, one day you feel like, yeah, I could believe that. I could commit my life to Jesus. And the next day you're like, ah, I've had some questions. And I want to tell you that that's just where the crowds are. They're going back and forth. There are people who say, yes, he must be the Messiah. And other of their friends who are saying, no, no, he can't be. So there are honest seekers in the crowd. And it's okay to be here and be an honest seeker and be undecided. And there are hard-headed skeptics in the crowd who right now are very antagonistic toward the idea of Jesus as Messiah, King, Response number three, there's unbelief due to Jesus as a rival authority. And that's the religious leaders. Now, as soon as I wrote that in my notes, there's a lot of stuff I wanted to write about the religious leaders. One, they're frauds. There's a lot of stuff in Matthew 23 that, frankly, I just wanted to work into this sermon. And if you go back and you read that passage, it's just molten words from heaven. I mean, Jesus pronouncing the prophetic woe on them, just a judgment from heaven. Wow. stuff! And I wanted, to, I wanted to work all that into my sermon today, but I didn't. You know why? Because this is me. You know, the only time I have a problem with Jesus is when I demand Jesus to bow to my authority. It's when I say, no, I'm the authority here. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for advice. But I'm going to do it Jeff's way. And so, and so the, my biggest problem with Jesus is that I am sometimes a rival authority to Jesus. And Jesus wants to tell them and he wants to tell me, I will have no other rivals. I will have no competitors. I'm the one and only. And so they perceived him to be a threat to their status quo religion. Their status quo theology. Verse 1 and 25. They were looking for a loophole, a pretext to kill him. They were already thinking about killing him. Wow. Verse 7, it says they hated him. They hated him. Verse 23 says they charged him with blasphemy. You're a blasphemer. Verse 32 says they tried to arrest him. Now this is the funniest part of the whole story. This is high comedy right here because they send the temple guards down to arrest Jesus. They're gone for a long time. They come back empty-handed. Here's the text. It says in verse 45 to 46, Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring them back? And they said, Well, no one ever spoke as this man does. I love that. So essentially they come back empty-handed and the Pharisees and the scribes and, and the rabbis go, wait a second, you were supposed to bring him back with you. Why didn't he come back? And they're like, well, because he's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you know? They said, we sent you down not to fawn all over him, not to be tricked by him or spellbound by him. We sent you down there to get him. <laughs> and, the, and these poor guys, I love that in the story. And then their response, they revile. The temple guards. You stupid morons. That's essentially what they say. And then Nicodemus speaks up for Jesus. And they're like, what are you, stupid? Notice their attitude. They're completely antagonistic toward Jesus. Their unbelief is due to the fact that they don't want a Jesus who's a rival to their authority. To their authority system. Next, response number four is unfinished conviction. Just a guy who clearly has some unfinished business with Jesus. I mean, he's halfway there. His name is Nicodemus. This is a guy who is, his faith is in progress. He's just not there yet. Nicodemus is working it out. He's not quite there, so don't write him off yet. Verse 50 says this, Nicodemus, so he's a member of the Pharisees, their Pharisaic order. It says, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Oh, such graciousness. Look into it. That's what my kids say to me. Whenever they tell me a fact and I know it's not true, I'm like, that's not true. They're like, dad, look it up. That's their attitude. Google it. And you will find that a prophet does not come from Galilee. Well, that's not in the Old Testament. He is clearly, Nicodemus is clearly sympathetic to Jesus' claims. He is, right now he's just wandering. He's a sympathetic wanderer. He's just like, I don't know. I love going and having a conversation with Jesus. Like, have you ever met someone? They just, they read the New Testament and they will say to you, man, I just love reading the words of Jesus. I just don't know if I can commit to him being God the Son, the unique God from glory. I don't know if I can commit to that yet. And that's kind of where Nicodemus is. And I think he does eventually come around. Look at chapter 19, John 19, 39. It says, he, he, that is um, Joseph of Arimathea, thank you for the line, Uh, he was uh, accompanied by Nicodemus. The man who earlier visited Jesus at night. So clearly this is John 3, right? Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. What is he doing? He's helping prepare Jesus' body for burial. I guarantee none of the other Pharisees did that. This man is coming around. He may not be there yet, but he's coming. He's getting there. And so I want to encourage you. If you find yourself in this text, any of these responses are your response. I want to encourage you... To come and drink from the water of life. Come and drink from the fountain. Come and drink from the river. But I also want to encourage all of you, every single one of you who have a family member, a brother, a sister, a mother, a father, someone, a spouse, who isn't there yet. And they could be in this chapter. Don't give up on them. Don't give up on them. One, just because a person doubts today doesn't mean they'll never come around. Look at Jesus' brothers. James in this chapter, does not believe in Jesus. And then later, James becomes the leader of the church in Jesus' absence. Jude does not believe in Jesus right now. Jude is going to write a book in the New Testament later. (laughs) So do not count them out. Do not give up on them. Pray for them every single day because you don't know what God is doing. You don't know how God is going to bring them. Two, just because a person seems like an enemy of Christ today doesn't mean they'll always be that way. Just because a person seems like they can't stand God and they hate God, and and you may be thinking to yourself, I can't imagine how that person is ever going to become a Christian. Acts chapter 6 verse 7 says this, And the church was increasing in numbers rapidly, and a great number of the priests and Pharisees became obedient to the faith. Think about that think about that. Many of the same guys who in this chapter hate Jesus, want to kill Jesus actually were responsible for him going on the cross for their charge of blasphemy. Later, they are going to come to faith in Jesus in droves. Don't count an enemy out. Thirdly, just because a person hasn't made up their mind yet doesn't mean God, isn't done, God is done with them. Look, they may be a Nicodemus. Just an honest skeptic or seeker. Who just doesn't know if they're ready to commit, but they're, but they're here. They're in church. And they're sitting here saying, I, I just come every week for the warm fuzzies. Great, I'm glad you're here. I hope we give you lots of warm fuzzies. But in the midst of it, I, I want to offer you something else. More than warm fuzzies, I want to offer you the water of life. Because Jesus has come to me. I am the living water which the scriptures foretold. And if you come to me in faith and put your trust in me, Jesus says, I will pour the Holy Spirit out on you. I end with a story. Many years ago, I was 17 years old, and I went on a missions trip to Belize, Central Central America. And uh, there was about 20 of us in the group, and I was there. We were ministering at a, a church in a camp. And we got to the camp, and me and my friend Robbie had played a lot of basketball, a lot of kind of uh, just street ball. And so we got there, and when we got to the camp, they were so gracious. They had made us a big eggs and cheese breakfast. which was just like cheese covering the eggs, and it was great. It was covered in flies, too, and we just ate the flies and the eggs. We no, no complaining. But we had to bring our own water because we were told in the prep for the trip, you cannot drink their water. No matter how thirsty you get, you cannot drink their water. And then we just brought truckloads of bottled water. And, uh, and we were told, when we got there, don't drink the water. Because your stomachs, you, you haven't been raised here. You don't have whatever's going on in the stomach to process this water. You're first world people. You can't do it. Don't drink the water. And then some kids at that camp invited us to come out to go on a walk in the jungle. And I'm not kidding. We got on a trail, on a path, and walked right into the jungle. Into nothing but Jungle. And then there was a clearing. It was an asphalt pad, and they had created a basketball court course out there, court. And they had just got done some dumpster diving and found like some trash can lids and stuff, and they created their own backboards and hoops. And they were like, uh, "Do you do you play basketball?" We were like, "We're Americans. Of course we play basketball." And, and so we got in a pickup game, and it was clear they had no idea how to play basketball. They had seen it on TV, and they thought, "Let's try." And Robbie and I. Just, I mean, we were all over that court, man. We were like showing them the moves. And uh, there was one point in the middle where one of the guys said, we took a little break and he said, uh, so are you two going to play in the NBA? And we were like, well, I mean, not right now. I mean, maybe, maybe later, <laughs> you know. And it just boosted our ego. And so we worked all the harder to show them our, our amazing moves. And two hours later... In the middle of the Belize sun, we realized we forgot to bring bottled water. And I just thought I I was going to die. It was so hot. And I was sweating out of every pore of my body. And there was a little spigot there that they had turned on after the game. And they all lined up and were just guzzling out of this spigot. And it was running all over them. And I was like... And so I got in line. I went over and I got in line. And Robbie walked right over to me. He said, dude, no matter how much you want to, you can't. We can't. And I go, yeah, you're right, man. We can't do that. And so we walked all two miles back, all the way back to the camp. And when we got there, we just poured water in our heads and drank it. I was never remember being so thirsty in all my life. And here's the thing that I've learned about a person dying of thirst. They will drink anything. And our culture is dying. They're dying. And they're drinking everything. They're drinking anything that somebody gives them. And they will just gobble it up because they're so thirsty. And here's Jesus of Nazareth coming and saying, come to me and drink the water of life. You will never thirst again. After you drink this, you will never want anything else than this to satisfy, because it truly satisfies the hunger and the thirst in your heart. It really does. And nothing else will. No other stream that the culture gives you will satisfy. It's only Jesus. Will you pray with me? God, we're so thankful this morning, God, for to live in such a water-rich part of the world. It's just cool. But Lord, you remind us this morning that no matter how much of that we had, you are the living water. And God, we live in a, in a culture that is just swamped with the streams of darkness that are feeding into the souls of people and god you are the one that offers us something our soul thirsts for that nothing else can satisfy and if you're here this morning if you just you just have tried those streams you've been there done that and you bought the t-shirt on everything that the world has offered you and you realize this morning this is your moment it's time to drink it's, trying to, it's time to open your heart and open your hands and receive the one who will pour the Holy Spirit's presence out on you and baptize you and deluge you in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Will you receive it right now? It's not hard. It's not hard. You open your hands. You open your heart. And you receive this free gift of life and, and forgiveness of sin. And it goes like this. God, forgive me for my sin. I have sinned against you and I... I have drunk in deeply from a world that gives me nothing but sin. And it has no answers for what ails me, for what is making me sick. And right now I turn to faith in you. Will you satisfy the desire of my heart? And I trust in you. You died for my sins and you were raised again to bring me back to life. And I receive it in Jesus' mighty name and I will never be the same, and I will never drink the same. In Jesus' name, amen.